This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. What are the hard questions in education today? For example, the, the issue of privatization, whether private providers or, or private, you know, you know, handing out public institutions, public schools to private providers is a good idea, whether it's something that that many people say that it enhances quality and access to education, whether this is really happening. This is certainly probably the best example of a very hard question in educational improvement and change. My guest is Pasi Salberg. When he was teaching at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, he edited a book with his students on some of the biggest and hardest questions facing education today. In our conversation, Posse speaks about the class, the book, and the importance of writing op-eds. He even offers some advice for Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. You know, probably one of the first things I, I, I would try to do is to try to enhance your understanding that there are very different ways to look at some of these core questions and things in America if you move around the world. And I would also try to, you know, speak with her about the opportunity to learn from one another, from other countries and other systems. Many listeners have probably heard of Posse Salberg. Some might even consider him an educational change maker. I ask Posse if he sees himself as a change maker. Stay tuned to hear his answer. Posse Sauberg is a global educational advisor. His latest co-edited book is entitled Hard Questions on Global Educational Change, Policies, Practices, and the Future of Education, which was published by Teachers College Press earlier this year. Posse Sauberg, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you so much, Will. So you have a new book on uh, global educational change uh, that you've co-written with some of your students at Harvard. What is global educational change to begin with? Well, first of all, we wanted to we wanted to have a collection of uh, questions and issues in education, educational development that are taking place, uh, are relevant and asked around the world. Um, so we had a, we had a long long list of candidates for that, and we we uh, kind of a, uh, narrowed it down to about seven or eight big things. Uh, something we wanted to have uh, we ha- wanted to have a kind of a conversation that could take place anywhere uh, around the world. Uh, questions and issues that are not simply things like which year was uh, John Dewey born or something like that. Something that it, it t- takes a little bit more than just, you know, opening a book and, and looking at the, the answer to that. Uh, the, the issues that are relevant to educational conversation almost anywhere in the world. And so what are some of these big questions that you settled on? Well, obviously, one of those uh, things that uh, in education in, in most countries uh, policymakers and practitioners and researchers are asking uh, that is, is a good example of a hard question in education is, for example, the, the issue of privatization, whether uh, private um, uh, private providers or, or private, you know, you know, handing out public institutions, public schools to private providers is a good idea, whether it's something that that many people say that it enhances quality and access to education, whether this is really happening. This is certainly probably the best example of a very hard question in educational improvement and change. The other questions are uh, obviously the classical question of uh, 
the role of standardized testing? Is this really something that improves education if we test kids more? Um, uh, another question, good hard question, is the, the teacher union question that people are debating around the world. Some people say that the, the, uh, you know, the obstacle for all real change are the, are the unions. And other people say that you know, when teachers have right to unionize or, or belong to an association that improves education. So that type of things, we, um, we spend quite a bit of time actually thinking about whether the question is a hard question in educational change or not. And, and that's where we ended up. So what would um, what were some of the requirements to be considered a you know a quote unquote hard question rather than just a an easy question? Well, this is a hard question, Will. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think you know uh, you know if you if you look at the educational conversation in different parts of the world, obviously there are there are questions that are not really hard questions. Like uh, uh, you, you know, many people are now interested in higher performing education systems like Finland or Singapore or Canada. And some of those not so hard questions obviously are things like, um, uh, you know, you know how Finland is, is uh, treating it, its teachers or what, what the curriculum looks like in Singapore or, or such things that you, you can easily just go to the literature and, and find, uh, find the, uh, um, the answer to these questions. The hard questions we defined uh, to be something that that you can you can easily you know find different sides of the the the, the question and come up to dif- different answers as well. Uh, for example, let's take the the, um, the private school question. Uh, so you you may ask that okay, are the private schools a good way to enhance the quality and performance of education systems? This is something that. You, you, you know, if you just simply take the ideological side, you can say that, no, I don't like private schools. I think the public system is a good. And, and you can find research on that. You can say that, you know, this is the result. Then some other people may say that, well, you know, look at look at systems like the Netherlands, for example, where mo- most of the most of the schools are uh, not pri- not public schools, that they're actually private schools. And the system is doing very well. So what's going on in, in the Netherlands? Uh, so we have to dig into the kind of a definitions of, you know, what are we actually talking about? And this is exactly what we, tr- what we wanted to do with these hard, so-called hard questions that, um, and, and that's what, what we wanted to teach our students is that, hey, wait a minute, you know, something that may look obvious in the beginning, it may look much more complicated and complex when you dig into the literature and research and that we have to be much more careful in our kind of immediate reactions to these questions. Somebody might have, for example, the union question, something that is based on her or his experience by saying that, you know, I belong to the union and it was horrible. Uh, and, and what we try to do is to say that, you know, you cannot, you cannot judge the whole question by your own experience, that you have to, you have to look at different types of unions. Again, you know, this teacher union question is, a, is interesting because if you go to Canada, for example, and you look, look at the Canadian provinces, how they, how they offer um, kind of a membership or association, professional association services to their teachers, like in Alberta, for example, Alberta Teachers Association, that is a kind of a, a gold standard uh, union, if you wish, uh, doing very good jobs. And, uh, and, and that's why you, you cannot really immediately say that the, that type of association union is bad. We have to le- really look at what, what do we mean by these things. And finally, Will, what we realize, what we try to kind of learn is that 
perhaps the the better outcome of answering these hard questions is not the 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 answer itself, whether it's yes or no, but it's a better understanding of the the question itself and and new questions. As you, if if you read the book, you will see that many of the students that they rather than you know saying that you know this is this is the answer to this question is that if you think about more of this this particular question, you you get new new questions, new new issues that you really have to answer before you can understand what it is. So that's uh, to us the the hard question is really something that is as you move along the road in answering the question, is generating new ones, new interesting things that you really have to understand and research and answer before you can say anything about the the initial question. So it's so you weren't looking for answers to some of these hard questions, but rather uh, an in-depth engagement with the, the, the hard question itself to uncover more of the nuance and maybe potentially ask some more um, nuanced questions. So what would be some of these nuanced questions that you would ask for, say, privatization rather than just, you know, is private, are private schools good? What would be the, the nuanced question that comes out of uh, an in-depth engagement with the debates? Well, it, it, again, a great question, Will. I, I, I think, you know, what, what we can learn from the comparative education and the, the in, international perspective to things is... Uh, um, is is helping us to answer this question that you were asking because first of all the the private the term private in education means so many different things in different countries my students uh, that was my experience typically uh, always thought about private as being a for example a private school a pe- being a uh, for profit private school that is you know skimming uh, funds and, and uh, profits from parents or students. Uh, and of course, the private can mean much more than that. Again, the Netherlands is a good example of this. Uh, in Finland, where I'm from, um, we have, you know, if you look at the statistics, we have about 10, 10% of our school children attending so-called private schools, but they are not really private schools. They, they, are, they are non non-publicly governed schools that are funded fully funded by private private funds. So I, I think uh, you know if you if you begin to understand that there are different kind of a forms of private engagement uh, in many countries, you know, being a private school means that you you um, uh, you get the funding from the public money, uh, but you can govern the school uh, by yourself through your own governing uh, body, whatever it is. And that's quite fine, you know. I have no difficulty in in my country, for example, to say that you know these schools are doing a pretty good job, and they they have their own mission why they want to do that. And simply by saying that, as a Finn, for example, saying that you know private schools should be abolished and everybody should be covered in the same way, I think it's not not very smart thing to do. Um, and that's exactly what what actually these hard questions are all about. Then on the other side, you know, you go to look at the private schools, kind of a privatization of public education that you have covered in your in, in the series a lot. Um, uh, I, I think there are several questions there. For example, allowing uh, for-profit foreign companies to enter in, into education markets in Africa uh, simply by promising too much and and doing this thing as a business uh, uh, 
for profit for the owners. That's something that's completely different form of, of privatization and private education. So, uh, but you know, my experience is that most people, uh, particularly the students, that they, they don't have this type of thinking, they don't have this information and background to have a have a good conversation and then come into the conclusion of um, you know what to do. So that's that's a kind of example of this you know privatization. Um, that has been topic of this uh, this podcast series as well. It's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent example of this. So, I mean, it seems like there are, in a sense, there are global questions, global hard questions, but there are certainly not global answers to these questions. That's a very good. I <laughs> hope that we would have had this wisdom for our book as well. It's very well said, Will. So I, I would like to turn to one of the ideas that you talk about in the in the book is about educational change makers, the people who have to grapple with some of these hard questions. So what sort of characteristics do you find um, in educational change makers? Like who are these people? Yeah, we, we use this change maker word. You know, when I, when I entered uh, Harvard, one thing I realized there that many, many of those young people who came to study there, they, they, they actually, one way or the other, they say that you know, I want to make a. Dif- I'm here to make a difference in the. World. I want to make the world a better place through education, um, and you, you know, when I ask them if you want to be a change maker, most, most you know, most of my students say that this is really what I want to do, and uh, and and that's why we we kind of coined this term there to say that you you know if you want to if you want to change the world, you want to be you you have to be a change maker, and and you have to understand what you uh, what you do. Uh, Ashaoka, that is a movement for social entrepreneurs, uses this change maker term a lot, and they include things like, uh, you know, before you can really make be successful in making a change and turn things around, you have to have certain qualities. You have to you, ha- you have to develop some some aspects of your your professional and uh, and personal lives. Some of them are like empathy that you really need to, and I think the empathy is a key question also for being successful and good in answering these hard questions in, in, in global education or global education says that change in, in other words and understand that the situations are different in different parts of the world and that people are people are looking at education and the world uh, through a very different lenses in Finland in Canada and Singapore in Africa and other places so that people need to to have that one the other one is of course leadership that you need to you need to understand what it, what it is to be a leader in the field of education. Uh, and that's where the things like, you know, communication, writing powerfully, uh, short pieces like we have in this book, or, or doing blogs that you do, um, or writing op-eds actively in, the, in your own community newspaper or national newspaper, those other things. And then, of course, successful change maker has to know how to collaborate. You have to be able to work together and collaborate with people also with a different and opposing views and opinions in education. And this is exactly that we try to kind of offer to these new change makers a, as a mindset that they would understand that rather than, you know, being a divider that we see, for example, in the United States, is that the situation is, is a rather horrible in, in a sense that it's a, you know, this whole education landscape there is divided uh, 
by a huge canyon of opinions um, uh, in, in a way that you, you either belong to one camp or the other. And there's a very little communication and collaboration between those two things. And that's, you know, whenever I look at this widening canyon in America, I say that, you know, find, finding a, a sustainable solution to improve education for children looks almost impossible <laughs> if you don't. And, and, you know, being a change maker, you have to be able to, you know, um, you know, build, build bridges rather than build walls. I think this is the saying what the Americans are saying right now. And that's, that's why I think the change maker is some, somebody who is, who is trying, trying to, uh, you know, trying to move between these, these different opinions and fields um, in education and, and, and by understanding better these hard questions, also be better in offering some solutions and ways forward. So keeping with the America theme, what sort of advice would you give Betsy DeVos, the education secretary, um, in her effort in answering some of these hard questions? Well, you know, if I had, if I had a luxury to, to sit down with her and as I did with, uh, with um, uh, Arnie Duncan before her, uh, you know, probably one of the first things I, I, I would try to do is to, to, to um, you know, give her this book and say that please try to try to enhance your understanding that there are there are very different ways to look at some of these core questions and things in America if you move around the world. And there are uh, I would also try to, um, you know, speak with her about the the um, opportunity to learn from one another, from other countries and other systems. I'm, I'm quite sure that she doesn't, since she's not an educator, that she doesn't know much about what's going on in, in, in other countries. And uh, she doesn't know that some of the potential solutions and ways forward for, to improve American education actually exist elsewhere. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's very hard to be successful in that type of job if you think that that you know mo- most of the solutions come through some type of ideological framework or world, um, which I, I I'm not sure whether she really she really knows that education is a kind of a professional field where we have a solid uh, research base and experience and and literature that we can refer to. Um, she might think that, you know, education is like politics. It's, a, it's an ideology that we can have opinions and then, you know, do what we think is the best thing to do. So I, I, I think the good, good way forward with, uh, with leaders like her and others would be to, you know, help them to understand that, listen, you know, go to Canada or, or come to Europe or go to Japan and see yourself, you know, see what people are doing and then, you know, have the, the good people around you and say that, so what should we make out of this? I, I would probably, if I had a little bit more that time with her than just a kind of an elevated type of speech, I, I would probably tell the story that I often tell, that I, I think I told Arnie Duncan and others, that, you know, if you come to Finland or if you go to Japan and you really spend time there in schools and, and you dig deeper in this educational change thing and ask simply ask the question that, okay, so where, where, what is the source of your innovation? What is the source of your teaching methods or leadership ideas in your schools? Uh, surprisingly, you would hear uh, more often than not people saying, teachers and principals saying that, 
you know, these are from the United States of America. This is uh, what we do in, in Finnish schools or Japanese schools are often um, often designed earlier in American in, by the American researchers and uh, educators. And, you know, if she would really understand this, saying that, okay, wait a minute, so you are, are you telling me that you are doing these things in Finland or Japan and you have these high scores in these international tests, much better than we do, and we are not doing those things that you do in there's something wrong here <laughs> and i'm i'm sure that you know anybody who would realize this that they actually the american ideas have made finland and japan and singapore and canada and, and the netherlands do that well and we are not doing that in uh, back home so okay let's think about this and this would be a revolution in a place like america to to rather than what john merrow is calling addiction to reform that I think America is addicted to, uh, to education reform would be to uh, look back and say that, okay, let's try to do better what we have done here during the last 50, 100 years. Let's try to do a little bit more of those things that all everybody else who is doing much better, better than we do are doing in their education reform, education policy, and improve our schools. You know, if I would succeed at least not 10% or 20% with this type of effort, uh, I, I would say that America would be in a in a much better track. And w- one of the first things that she would probably realize is that, that her kind of a obsession to privatize American school system uh, by insisting to hand over public schools to charters and other arrangements w- would very quickly be realized as a, as a wrong way in America. That would be that would be a good turn. So I want to just ask a little bit about you. You brought up earlier that um, op-ed writing is was a very important element for educational change makers, and in the book you were really um, you were really uh, telling students to go out and actually write op-eds, and I think it was even part of the grading requirements, or it was a requirement inside the syllabus. Can you just tell tell me why op-ed writing is so? important in your opinion yeah absolutely and and you're right that we in this course that was actually called the hard questions on global educational change the first exercise uh, was to write an op-ed and um, it's important because none of these students and they are experienced you know they're all master students students and they had experience uh, in work working life none of them had ever written an op-ed very few of them actually knew anything about what the op-ed is um, and we, that's how we started and that's how we ended the course and uh, and um, the grading was uh, indeed based on an op-ed. We, we said that if you get your op-ed, that is a not well, typically a five, six hundred word opinion based professional text published in a, uh, in a newspaper, for example, that if you get your thing published, you get automatically a grade A if you're interested in grades. Um, and, and that's uh, amazingly motivated many, many students to to uh, start to write. But I think it's, you know, if you really want to be a change maker today in education, you know, otherwise, if you want to have a voice in a conversation, um, if you want to see an impact of your opinions and knowledge uh, within your profession, uh, writing journal articles and books is too slow. You know, simply people don't have time to do that. And, you know, most ed- educators, most most of those people who have power board members and, uh, and you know, decision makers, they, they don't have time to read books. 
uh, they don't they don't even read the journal uh, or magazine articles anymore. What they what they need what they read are blogs um, and and op eds. You know something that you can while you have your breakfast that you 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 have a newspaper or or your iPod or something and and you you, you read us kind of a strong convincing piece on something that convinces you to think about that further and probably then go to the book and, and read the book so so we we decided to take this as a kind of a condition to to be a change maker in education um, and uh, you know I, I wanted to I did this in each of my courses at Harvard because of this realization that amazingly few students actually knew how to write and uh, you know, m- most of the first op-eds that they wrote were horrible. <laughs> that that they were they no- students normally included like five different issues in a five hundred piece uh, word piece. Um, uh, they included references that indicates that they have kind of a college experience. That w- whatever you say, you ha- always have to have a reference. And so we had to we 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 worked really hard to make make them understand what makes a powerful little piece called an op-ed or blog and we believe and I, I do believe that in education um, you, you can you can have much more influence by you know writing powerful short stories and, and pieces like this than writing writing books everybody you know we, we need to write books and, and journal articles as well I often used um, actually I had somebody from Washington Post uh, as a guest in our course just to, to uh, somebody who is uh, so Valerie Strauss who is having a very well-known education blog and site on the um, online online thing and then Valerie there in the middle of the her conversation with the students said that I wrote meaning me uh, wrote her one little story from kind of a, a little essay from Finland about the the Finnish teachers what happened if they they taught in the US schools and she said that without me knowing she said that and this was read like one and a half million times, and this was two two years ago, <laughs> and the students were like, one and a half million times, a little piece like that. Uh, <laughs> what type of book will be read one and a half million times? And and just just you know, think about the influence that that type of word has when people read it all around the world, and and that's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a good example that if you if you if you want to make your point, and if you want to make your point read very fast and quickly around the world. Uh, you, you know, plug or op-ed or short essay, something like, or something that you do here, this uh, this type of podcast is exactly mm-hmm. what people need to do. But not only, you know, this is sometimes people misunderstand saying that, so you, you're not writing books or research articles anymore. Of course I am, but I do not believe, and I, I think that my students should not believe that by writing a great book, they will change the world. They will change it a little bit, but it's often too late. Something, if you want to, address these timely hard questions you have to use the tools that we have right now so how many of your students actually were able to get an op-ed published we in all of my courses and this particular course probably about one third wow in in different um and different different media not 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 in a place like new york times or washington post some of them wrote in uh, i i think there are a couple of students whose pieces were published in in the, uh, the washington post one student got a very nice story out in the Global Mail in in uh, Canada. Uh, many of them got their things published in their own countries. They they came around the world. Um, but I I think the the 
I, I think that the best outcome really of this type of method was that so many of these students, when they, when they were leaving the course, they said, that, you know, I came to this course with the feeling that I really don't have a voice. I have a lot of opinions and I think I know quite a bit about education, but, you know, nobody's interested in what, what I know. And now understanding that by writing this little piece on somebody else's website or published somewhere else, uh, or even a kind of a letter to the editor, uh, that you know, I get a feedback, and people kind of appraise my views and my opinion. That I, I I learned in this course that I have a voice, that I have an opinion. People want to listen to what I have to say, and this is a huge outcome, of a kind of a learning experience that you have. If you if you can convince your young educators that, yeah, you know, my voice matters, and people want to hear what I think. So, I, I you know, a lot of people that are listening to this probably know your name and know that you, or would consider you to be an educational change maker. You are very active on Twitter and you are always presenting at different conferences and you write op-eds for you know, very well-known publications that get over a million reads. So I wanted to ask you, do you consider yourself an educational change maker? Um, I, I, Yes, I do. <laughs> I think <laughs> I, I think it's, you know it's, it's a hard it's a hard to know that. But when I I get a lot of mail also from private people from students increasingly right now. I probably get about two or three emails uh, every day from around the world. People say that they read my book or they listen to your your podcast where I'm speaking or or read one of those uh, blogs or op eds in the newspapers and. They, they say things like, you know, it really made me think about education more. And, you know, I decided to take the master's degree on education because of that or or something like that. And I, you know, when I put together all these things um, that people tell me, uh, obviously, I, 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 I must admit that I can I have made a change in at least many individuals. Then I have a, I'm an advisor to many governments and um, and people there kind of a uh, value the 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 insight that I bring, not only myself but together with other people, and they tell me that it's been helpful for them to, you know, improve education or make changes that they need to make. So you know, I'm not insisting. I'm not the kind of a change maker that some others would would be to you know go around and insist that you know this is how the things should be. That I'm, I'm more like a, that. What we do in this hard questions book that. You know, by asking hard questions and, and inviting people to to spend more time in, you know, thinking about some of these complicated issues in education and then be more like a coach and help guide people forward um, by meeting new people, bringing new educators and experts in and, um, you know, helping people to change themselves. I think the change maker that I would like to be uh, is something that will help people to change themselves. That's what I would like to be rather than being a change maker that will actually change people, period. Well, Posse Salberg, thank you so much for joining Freshhead. Good luck being that change maker as you travel the world. And I look forward to inviting you back on the show for your next book. Thank you, Will. And I think, you know, I would have one question for you. That Do you consider yourself as a change maker by, by doing this thing? I, and I, I think there's only one, one answer that you certainly you certainly are a change maker because I really enjoy the uh, this series that you do and and you bring uh, when when I went to look at the list of your 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 most recent podcasts that there are a lot of 
lot of uh, really hard questions in educational change that that should um, uh, should have been part of the book as well. So so I salute you uh, and your work um, as a change maker in in this very very needed needed time of educational change globally. So thank you for, for what you do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Posse Sauberg is a global educational advisor. His latest co-edited book is entitled Hard Questions on Global Educational Change, Policies, Practices, and the Future of Education, which was published by Teachers College Press earlier this year. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zung. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.